Well, good morning, Life Fellowship. It's great to see you. I love this time of the year. I know it's a little sick, but anytime school starts, I get excited. And it's not because I have kids that are leaving for the day anymore, because all my kids are adults. I just, I've always been one of those weird cookies that I just like school. So for 57 years, 56 years now, I have either been going to school, leading a school, teaching school, or sending kids to school. I'm, every year, I love this time. In fact, um, many of you know I teach for Liberty. By the way, my, my supervisor is here today. Troy, where, Dr. Temple, where are you at? Right, right up here. Wave at us, will you? Dr. Troy Temple is here. He's my boss at Liberty University. He is the dean of the Rawlings School of Divinity. Would you give him a special welcome this morning? He's a, he's a native Charlottean and uh, actually graduated from the Christian school that I used to lead here in Charlotte uh, many years ago. Uh, but uh, this, this weekend, um, it's kind of a big day for those of us who teach online or week, weekend because all of our classes ended from the summer session and all of our classes begin this, this uh, fall uh, next week. And so we're setting up classes and transitioning and turning in grades. And, and I just get all excited. I was talking to Clayton Cromwell a while ago and uh, his school starts on Wednesday. I know some of the Southlake kids. I think you already started. Uh, I met a couple of Davidson College guys who moved here to this area. I've already recruited for my life group uh, to, to get them there. Uh, in fact, last Wednesday night at my life group, I had a record attendance. I thought a bunch, because a bunch of our kids are leaving now, going, I got some at Pepperdine and UNC Chapel Hill and all these different schools. And I thought they were all leaving. But then we got a bunch of new ones that came in. And I, just every, every wave just excites me more. I, I love school. I love learning. I love students. I love the process. It's just great. That's why I love preaching. Because for me, preaching is just loud teaching. All right? I just get to get... And, and it's the people who accuse me of when I teach, they accuse me of preaching. And sometimes people say, well, you're not really just a preacher. You're also a teacher. It's, it's, it's how I'm wired. And so this morning, as we're into the book of Daniel, week two in our st- series... I'm going to speak to you about the topic of enrolling in the enemy's university. Enrolling in the enemy's university. Now, I want to kind of understand. I I kind of struggled with what I was going to call this. And I'm going to explain to you why I said the enemy's university. And I'm going to do this. This is actually a two-week sermon. I'm going to be preaching next week as well. I'm going to introduce you to some students who are enrolled in a school of sorts. And... I'm going to introduce you to them this week, and the next week we're going to dig down into their first big lesson and in their first big conflict at their new school. So you need to be here both weeks. How do you like that? All right? That was, that was subtle, but uh, hopefully effective. I want to see you all next week as well. If you weren't here last week to hear Pastor Ben set up this series, you need to go back and look at it on YouTube or go on to our church media page uh, and watch it or listen to it because... He explained to you why this book is so important, the book of Daniel, and and what we talk about when we're speaking of thriving in Babylon, and why that's important for us to understand today. But these verses that we had read earlier this morning, and I hope you'll kind of go ahead and read ahead and reread these as we continue this study, as we get into it. It's the story of how God uses our negative circumstances around us as an opportunity to thrive for the sake of what is true, what is real, and what is important. He reminds us in this book not only of our past and our present, but also of our future. And as we study this passage, I want you to personalize it. I want you to journey through as if you were Daniel, as if you were the three Hebrew guys. I want you to consider the conflict that arose in their heart. I want you to consider who in your life is a Nebuchadnezzar or a Darius or any of the other leaders you see. And I want you to consider the reality of a future that may not be clear but is certain. And so as we look at thriving in Babylon, today we're going to begin with an introduction of four of the primary students or primary characters that we see, particularly in the first few chapters of the book of Daniel. And I want you to be in their role mentally and what they went through. I also said this, and I put this out on my social media this week, and I hope many of you, and I see a lot of young people here today, and I just want to say this. If you are under the age of 25, particularly if you're under the age of 18, 
I want you to listen to Pastor Dan this morning, okay? I, 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 I want you to hear. You know the cool thing about Generation Z is Generation Z like old guys. So I, I love that. Millennials didn't care about old guys. Generation Z, for whatever reason, one of the characteristics of them is they like old guys. So I'm an old guy. Will you listen to me for a little bit this morning? Because I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to hit you where you're living right now. All right? For the next 30 minutes or so. And I would really urge you to talk to your moms and dads about it this week and hear from them. Because the most important voice you have in your life, by the way, is not Pastor Dan and Pastor Ben. It's not your teachers. It's not a youth pastor. It's mom and dad. All right? They are the ones who are primarily responsible for making sure you've got what it takes to survive wherever you're at. So it's always good, and I know they drive you nuts, and sometimes they drive me nuts, okay? But here's the deal. What they say is important, and you ought to listen. And here's the cool thing. The older you get, the smarter they get, too. So I I hope you'll listen to them, and I hope for the next 30 minutes or so, you'll listen to me. So here's what we've got. We've got Babylon. Babylon's a world empire. This passage that we just read happened somewhere in the neighborhood of 600 to 605 years before the birth of Christ. So six centuries, a long time. You say, well, how long was that? Well, let's put it this way. Six centuries ago, there was nothing on this continent except some Indians and a bunch of buffalo. All right? That's, that six centuries ago, America was just basically wild frontier. And so this is between the time of when Daniel and, and this crew lived and when Jesus would appear on the earth. So I, I, you've got different world empires, and I don't want to go back into a lot of what Ben was talking about last week. Go back and listen to that. And I don't want to give you a history lesson and get too wonky on you. But, but the bottom line is, this was a world empire. They wanted to rule the world. And from time to time, there is a despot that arises out of the political and power systems of the world that says, I want it all. I want to rule it all. I want it to all be mine. And Nebuchadnezzar was that guy. Nebuchadnezzar was so maniacal about being seen as the king of the world that whenever they would build a building, and Babylon was an amazing city, had gardens, it had ziggurats, it had huge walls around it. It had transport. It was a transportation hub. People come in and out and bring their goods in and sell them and, and take them back home and resell them. And all these cool things that were going on with Babylon. It had libraries and it was just amazing. It was a, a city known for its architecture. It was a city known for its uh, universities and its science and it's a, a study of the stars and the astronomy of, 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 that was being discovered at that time. And, and, and so they wanted to rule it all. So Nebuchadnezzar, every time they build a new building, on the side of the brick, on one side of the brick, it would have his name or his picture or a statement by him so that anywhere you went, Nebuchadnezzar was being promoted. It's interesting. This was a tradition that Saddam Hussein picked up in the 1980s and 90s when he ruled modern Babylon, which is, uh, which is Iraq. But when he was rebuilding much of, of, of uh, the Iraq, on one side would be the brick's name Nebuchadnezzar. On the other side would be Saddam Hussein. Again, from time to time, there are despots in the world who want it all. you got to watch out for them. They have an agenda, and they have a strategy. A strategy that promotes them and their ideals and their values, and the object of that is they want to rule the world. They want to be in charge. And the very first person that did that was a guy by the name of Lucifer. We always have to be aware that there's nothing new under the sun, as Solomon said. There's always, and in the heart of man, we repeat the agenda of Satan over and over and over if we're not watching out. And so that's what Nebuchadnezzar was doing. He would take over these lands, he would take over these countries, and he had a system whereby he could bring them into the fold. Now, there wasn't that many people compared to today around the world. There was limited resources. You couldn't just have an army that dominated the entire world. So what you had to do is build alliances. You had to find people in a country that would serve as your puppets, and you'd put them in positions of power. They would gather. They would get rich in the process. They would gather military forces, and they would rule. But all the wealth, all the riches, all the power, all the prestige kept going to the home base, which was Babylon. And so there were other big countries, big empires. Egypt at this time was kind of in decline, but Egypt was a big place. And between Egypt and Babylon, there was another country by the name of Judah. And Judah was God's people. It was Israel. It was, Israel was a mess at this time, but Judah was where the, 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 the royalty, the elites 
had gathered together. They, they had Jerusalem. They, they had a lot of the power of this nation. But in terms of consequence, they weren't a huge country. They weren't, they weren't massive. In fact, the, the, the geographical area was quite small. It was the equivalent of you know, a good-sized county in Texas or Florida. It, it, it wasn't a huge geographic area, but it had a lot of wealth. It had a lot of power, and it had a certain amount of prestige. And so Nebuchadnezzar saw it, and he wanted it. So he ended up taking it, and when he took it as part of his kingdom, he had to have this system put in place that would allow him to rule the Jews that were there, the Judites, and he would have to have them so they didn't cause him a lot of problems because he had bigger fish to fry. He had other places to go. So he had this system, and this system would be he would go into a country, and he would find, I'm going to use the word, the influencers. All right? All you young people know what I'm talking about, the influencers, right? They're the people that everybody knew. They're the people that were famous. They were the people that were kind of attention getters. Now, today you get an influencer by who has the most clicks and followers on Instagram or on, on, on uh, uh, Snap or, or one of the others. But in, in, in these days, they came from the right families. Their families were known to be leaders. They were known to be educated. They were known to have wealth. They were known to be in political powers. They were known to have the right last name. And so he would take groups of those and bring them back to Babylon and re-educate them. He had a long-term picture. Remember this. Remember this. In the scope of history, most of us look at four-year elections, two-year elections, American history of a few hundred years. But in terms of history, we're talking thousands of years. And, and, and one of the mistakes that we as Western Ameri Westerners or as Americans make is we look at history like this when history is like this. And remember this, Satan has a plan, and the plan is he wants to be in charge, and he'll take as long as he's got in trying to implement that. And remember this, God has always existed, so when we think of thousands of years, he's thinking of milliseconds. And all of this battle that is going on cosmically, so to speak, spiritually, so to speak, these, these, we're, we look at it like this in our little lifetime and there's much more going on. And, and, and so Nebuchadnezzar was looking at the long term and he was saying, this is the next generation of leadership. I need to be working on them. And so he brought them back to Babylon and he brought them in and he basically was saying, you are going to be my representatives around the world Judah and other places, you represent the influencers of your culture, of your nation. You're going to learn from us, but more than, uh, you're, we're going to learn from you, but more importantly, you're going to learn from us. He took the best, the brightest, and he said, I'm going to syncretically bring you into power and leadership, and we will do this together. That was his agenda. Other world empires have done this, by the way. That's why Rome built all the roads to come back to Rome in the Roman Empire. And that's why they wanted Latin to be spoken all over the world. They wanted a common language. They wanted common transportation. They wanted common values. And why? So that one person could be in charge. Because that's how it works. So what we have here in these few verses is an introduction to four guys. It wasn't just four. There were many more than four. There could have been dozens, scores, Maybe even a few hundred. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly how many. But the Bible said of all of the children that were brought back to Babylon from Judah, there's four I want you to note. And so we read them this morning. Now, commonly what we do is we remember at least three of the four by the new names that they got. In fact, when I was a little kid in Sunday school, we sang a song, Three, three Good Men Lived Very Long Ago, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, and it, that's, it kind of works into us. You say, well, Daniel's new name was Belteshazzar. Why don't we refer to Daniel as Belteshazzar? Because we've got a whole book of the Bible named after him, Daniel. That's, you know, that's, that's, his, that's his Hebrew name, and that's, that's the one we remember him by. But we've got these four guys, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel. Four out of dozens or scores or maybe even hundreds. I want to introduce you to them a little bit this morning. And I want to talk about what was at stake. Next week, we're going to get into the conflict. And I'm really tempted, and I really want to get into it this week, but I've got to show good discipline. I've only got a certain amount of time. And so I'm just going to introduce you to them this morning. And then I want to poke you in the brain, and I want to do it really hard and pointed. All right? So I, I want to say this before we get ahead. Get ahead. 
Some of you are going to want to say, yes, it's about time. But some of you are going to be ticked off at some things I say. All right? It's going to bug you just a little bit. It might be a little offensive. So I, I ask you to bear with me. You know, one of the things I think we do is make a mistake, and I think we do this on the right and the left, is we only listen to people that speak the exact same words that we speak, and so all we hear is our own sounds. Now, I like that because I want everybody to agree with me. So as long as you're parroting what I say, oh, we're great friends. But when you challenge me, Ooh, well, then I get nervous, right? But actually, that's where learning takes place, and that's where good conversations start, and that's where minds are changed. Now, chances of you changing my mind, I like to think, are pretty slim. But it does happen from time to time. But the process of changing my mind and how I try to live has rules. That's what I want to talk about this morning. All right? I don't want to persuade you to just do or believe something because Pastor Ben preaches it, because Pastor Dan preaches it, because the Bible study I study with Pastor Brad does it, because we, we learned it in Bible study. No, 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 no. I want you to go deeper. And I want you to have values, to think thoughts, to hold positions, to, to, to forge your opinions around something that's more secure and more authoritative than anybody that you are listening to right now. Whether it's Rachel Maddow or, or uh, Ben Shapiro, whether it's Pastor Dan or Pastor Ben, whether it's CNN or Fox News, I want you to think deeper than that. I want you to think in terms of what is really true, what is really real. And just because you're a pastor, just because you got a bunch of letters behind your name, just because you got a bunch of followers, just because you're in a position of authority or influence, whether it's in a classroom or in Washington, D.C., does not mean you're necessarily right. We have to learn what is real, what is true, and start from there. And that's our mission, that's our goal, and that's what we want to emphasize as we study this. So we've got these four guys. Let's look at Daniel first, because that's what the book's named after, right? The word Daniel, I happen to be kind of fond of that name, all right? Daniel means God is my judge. Now, when he moved there, what they did was he said, we're going to rename you. There's a reason for that, and I'm going to go into it in a little bit, but we're going to rename you. And so they renamed him Belteshazzar. And Belteshazzar means Mabel who is an, it's another name for a pagan god that the Babylonians worshipped named Marduk. And it's made, may Marduk or may Bel protect his life. All right? So now stop and think about this. God, speaking of Jehovah, Elohim, speaking of the God of Israel, may God be my judge versus... May Marduk, may Bel, protect my life. Now, there's another translation of it that some, some scholars have looked at, and it said it could also mean treasurer of Bel or official of Bel, particularly it had money connotation to it, which would be kind of ironic because Daniel would eventually become one of the main financial managers for the kingdom of Babylon. But more likely, the translation is this. It was kind of homage to this pagan god. There were multiple. This was a polytheistic, poly meaning many, polytheistic culture that they were in. They had multiple gods, many of them having to do with the stars in the heavens because they were deep into astrology. But the idea was, Daniel, you're no longer be known as someone who's an adherent to the, the, the religion and the faith or under the authority of the God of Israel. Instead, you have a new protector. You have a new allegiance, and that is to Marduk. Right? So the next three guys that we read, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Again, these are not names that flow off the tongue. We don't sing, three good men lived very long ago, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. No, we, we don't do it that right. Well, it's easy to remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but Hananiah, the name there, again, a name that was given to him by his mama and his daddy, a name that represented family values and cultural norms. So Hananiah's name means the Lord shows grace. The Lord shows grace. It's got a doctrinal statement to it. God had been gracious to Israel. God had promised they were going to be a great nation. God had made all these promises to him. So when he said God gives grace, it, it, it had the symbolism to it, but they changed it to Shadrach. 
And Shadrach means command of Aku. Aku was the moon god. So you had Marduk, you had Aku. And so in other words, it was a command of Aku. In other words, loyal to or in allegiance to Aku. Again, notice what they were doing. They were saying, get rid of your god, your Israel, the culture of Israel. Get rid of all this. And instead, here's your new name. Here's your new identity. Here's your new god. Right? So that was Hananiah. Mishael, they asked the question. It was a rhetorical name. Who is like God? Now, this one is cruel. This one's really interesting because they changed it from Mishael, Mishael or Mishael, and they changed it to Meshach. Very similar. Mishael, Meshach. And it asked the question, who is like God? And changed it. And it was probably because it's kind of a pun in, their, in, 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 in the Babylonian language. And instead of who is like God, who is like Aku? Again, the moon god. So instead of being able to say, every time you heard uh, Mishael's name, who is like God? There is no one like God. There is no God before him. Uh, worship no other gods. Think of the Ten Commandments. Think of the authority and the sovereignty of God. Instead of that, they switched it, made a play on his name, and said, who's like a coup? And every time he got called by that name, it had to just kind of like poke him a little bit. Because for years, his mama had said, hey, Mishael, Mishael, come here. And now it's, hey, Meshach, right? <laughs> hey, son of a coop, why don't you come over here? Can you imagine the tension that caused in his heart? So the third one was Azariah. Azariah, the Lord helps. And, and, and the idea was, again, that we are in subjection to, we are dependent upon Jehovah. We are dependent upon the God of Israel. And it was changed to Abednego. And Abednego means servant of Nabu, who was the son of Marduk. All right? Again, a deity, but a lesser deity than Marduk. And so it became, again, so you're a descendant of. You're still in allegiance to the family. So notice what happened here. There was a strategic plan intentionally in place that would change the known identity of these four guys. It wasn't problematic for all the others, but for these four, it shows the agenda that took place at the new school in which these young elites, these influencers, this young generation had been enrolled. They could not have been more clear, we are going to change you. We're going to change how you think, what you like, your values, your history, your identity, your very foundation. We are here to change you. I want you to understand, spiritually speaking, that is true of Satan's agenda. We'll go into this next week, and I'm doing what I said I wouldn't do, but i got to give you just a little taste of it. My life's verse is Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. The Bible says, Be not conformed to this world, verse 2 of Romans 12, but be ye transformed. That word is actually metamorphosized, like, like the difference between a caterpillar and a butterfly. Be not conformed to this world. What is this world? It's Babylon. It is the world system that we live in. And Paul was saying to the Romans, he said, and, and, and again, here we got another world empire, the empire of the Romans, of the Caesars, of the officials, of the powerful, mighty army. And he's saying to the believers, do not be conformed. That word conformed is really interesting because it means pressed into the image of. When I was a kid, my grandmother used to make butter. She'd churn it with an old-fashioned, not this kind of churn, but a, a crank churn. And you'd take the, after the cream had, uh, the, the fat had come out of the cream, and you'd press it together. You'd stick it in this little box, and you'd push it down. And, it, and then if you took it and shook it and it came out, there'd be a stick of butter and it had like a little symbol in it that from, from inside the box. And what you would do is you would conform that butter to the image of the box and you knew, well, Grandma made that because it has from the box. And it's a symbol. You could see the etchings on it. And that's the whole idea. In other words, don't let the world put its mark on you. Don't let the world put its identifiers on you. Do not be defined by the containers that the world is trying to press you into. But instead be metamorphosized. Now what is there about a butterfly that we know? That it used to be a worm. 
I mean, I got them in my garden right now. Uh, uh, I was talking to the Robertsons last night. They got them big old tomato worms. But the tomato worm eventually becomes like a, some kind of moth or butterfly. And they're, they're ugly. They're nasty. Chickens love them, but we don't, you know. Uh, but eventually they'll form a chrysalis. And eventually it'll merge out of it and it'll be somewhat, at least be better looking than a worm, a butterfly. Why? Because they've been transformed out of sight from the inside out. And if you are going to stand against the confirmation work of the devil and the world system, that doesn't happen because you keep a list of rules, because you can recite a catechism, because you know 400 verses of scripture. That happens because you've been changed from the inside out. The Holy Spirit lives within you and the transforming work of God changes you, changes your identity, changes your appearance, changes how you process information. <laughs> Even for the caterpillar, it changes their diet. It changes their agenda. It changes everything. They become a new creature. That's why the scripture says, in Christ, we are a new creation because we've been metamorphosized. That's the battle. That's the battle of the school in which you and I are enrolled in right now. And the question is, who are you going to let be your instructor? Who are you going to let be your conforming influence? How are you going to emerge at the end of class? And this is what we see in the life of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Changing their names was not simply a way of conveniently attaching them to their new culture. But it was an intentional action intending to obliterate their former identity, including their heritage, their faith, their religion, personal identity as sons of Abraham. And in the end, Babylon changed their names, but Babylon did not change their character and really did not change their identities because they chose to be identified on what they believed, not where they were. Now, here's something I want to tell you that's going to going to rock your world a little bit. Ben and I, Ben, Ben's the one who introduced me to this. I did not know this a week ago. And Ben shared this with me, and I didn't believe him. I got to tell you this. I'm a skeptic. By the way, you ought to do that with your pastors, all right? You know, we didn't come directly off the mount. So if it doesn't sound right, go check it out. Well, I checked it out. I studied probably for two or three hours on this. But here's the conclusion that we've reached when Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the rest of the Hebrew children were taken. I want you to notice something. They don't talk about young ladies. They were all guys. But there is strong evidence, and I can't say it 100% authoritatively true, but there is strong evidence, a strong case. Now, bear with me. I know this makes some of you uncomfortable, but bear with me. That when these guys, who were between the ages of probably 14 and 20, they were still very young. They were not married. They were still living at home. That when they took these boys between 14 and 20 away from their parents, away from their cities, away from their schools, away from their friends, they took them to Babylon and they castrated them. They castrated them. They became eunuchs. Now, I've got to tell you, that's a big deal. It's a big deal. And you say, well, first of all, how do you know that? Well, there, there, I'm not going to give you this huge thing because, again, I tend to get wonky. But there's, there's at least three evidence. First of all, they're under the care of the chief eunuch. So when you use a term like chief eunuch, it means usually that you're, if you're the chief eunuch, you're over other eunuchs. All right? And so that being, a, that being an idea. And there is one translation you can actually say where it says chief officer, but that seems like a real nebulous term. It was probably chief eunuch was the accurate term. The second thing is this, in 2 Kings chapter 20, and this is kind of long, so I'm going to condense it, but Hezekiah, king of Judah, showed a Babylonian ambassador all the treasures that Israel had in Jerusalem, in Judea, in the temple. And, and ultimately, when they came in, they took all, not all of them, but a lot of them, and used them as plunder. But they knew where they were because Hezekiah was trying to make nice with the enemy and say, hey, yeah, look at what we got over here, look what we got over here. And, and somebody's taking notes. So when they came back in and captured it, they took all of those. And because of that, Isaiah said, you got a curse on you, bro. This is what's going to happen. And it's found, it's found in, I, um, in 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 18. All that is in your house and that which your, son or your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. So in other words, you showed them the stuff, now they're going to take it. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, 
shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. This is likely the fulfillment of that curse because they disobeyed Hezekiah. Right? There's, there's a third piece of evidence uh, that, that goes into a passage in Isaiah where he speaks of those returning from exile from Babylon are eunuchs. And again, I'm not going to go into all of that, but I, there's at least three reasons why we believe this, this is the case. So why would somebody do this? Well, they would do this because when you castrate a male, it takes away the testosterone production. The testosterone production is what makes guys a little... How shall we put it nicely? Uh, you know, at, at, we're pushy. <laughs> we're opinionated. At times we can be a little violent, <laughs> you know. That's why, you know, men make awesome soldiers, all right? It makes them assertive, makes them aggressive. That's how God designed it. Makes us bigger, gives you more muscle, all right? It's again, I know we don't like to talk about this in the culture, but there's big differences between men and women physiologically. And, you know, it's not good science to deny that. And that's the reality. That's why they castrated them so that they would become more docile, submissive, less likely to confront. Say, so why was that important? Because if you're king, who do you want position in positions of power around you? Yes, men. Docile. Not guys likely to, you know, try to beat you up or take your throne or whatever. You want good, strong, smart people who are not going to give you a lot of problems. So it's very logical that he would do this. Here's what I want you to note. And I'm, I'm doing a little foreshadowing here, but here's what I want you to note. Even in the absence of traditional physiological masculinity, these guys believed what they knew to be true and right so completely that they were not passive about it. They did not roll over and show their bellies. They got up and they said, and we're going to see it next week, this is who we are, this is what we believe, this is how we'll behave. And so even the best plans of Babylon to neuter them physically, intellectually, spiritually, socially, were not sufficient to get them to forget who they were under their God. And so can we. In a culture that wants to conform us to its image, there is nothing on earth that's powerful enough for us to have no choice but to give up truth. And when you get that settled, it will change the trajectory of your journey. So let's talk real quickly about two things. First of all, let's talk about this current conflict. I've introduced you to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now you see them for who they are. So let me make a quick application and then we'll be done. Number one, we need to recognize that there is a battle for our minds that is actively being waged. They'll deny that. The world always denies that. Or they'll try to convince us it's for a good cause. It's for a good reason. But it is never too soon for you to realize that there is a cosmic battle in place between evil and good, between lies and truth, between God and Satan for your heart, your mind, and your identity. It is as real as the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Satan wants to dominate you so that you'll worship him and not God. Satan wants to undercut God so you'll listen to him and not God. Satan wants you to think thoughts that are unworthy of God and think thoughts that belong to God instead of assign them to him. Satan wants you to think of him as the authority, not as God as the authority. And whether you're two or 102, you live in a world that wants to conform you into its image. There is a battle for your mind actively being waged. It is the battle of worldview. Babylon is trying to disciple you into their values. Now, I've spent a lot of time this morning warning the young people because whether you go to public school or private school and sometimes Christian school or even homeschool, there are still plenty of messages coming your way 
that say, think like me and not like them. It's there. You all know it. You don't have to have me give you illustrations for it. You know it's there. But if you think it ends when you graduate and get, you know, move your tassel or whenever you get that degree or that stole or whatever it is, you think it ends then, you're mistaken. And I would say to the adults here, it may be happening at your required DEI workshop. It may be through social media or Netflix or some other form of popular culture. It could be through active peer pressure in your social group. Oh, you're not one of those, are you? Why, yes, yes, I am. Or it could be through professional intimidation, manipulation. You want the office on the corner with the good view? You better get in line, bud. We don't like boat rockers around here. But make no mistake, there is an active effort on the part of Babylon to get you to change the way you think and to conform to their worldview. I'll be much more on this next week, but I don't want you to miss it. You say, well, what is a worldview? A worldview is how you see the world. That's pretty simple, right? I don't mean to be condescending, but that's what it is. It's a lens through which you understand and evaluate the good you want to live for and the evil you want to avoid. That's your worldview. And for the Christian, our lens is right here. It's this book. You say, well, I don't believe it. Okay, that's fine. God, God gave you free will. But you understand, you use a lens, so what will be your lens? Is it going to be your feelings? Is it going to be the majority? Is it going to be Buddhism? Is it Hinduism? I can go on isms for the rest of the morning. You see, you don't get to be neutral. The absence of a good worldview means that you're looking through a bad worldview. And I would contend, and I have a whole lecture, in fact, I'll be doing it out in Colorado later uh, this year with uh, Sam Hatfield, who is one of our young men, uh, teaching a bunch of gap year students out in Colorado. But I, I, there's only two worldviews. There really is, only two worldviews. Now, I can give you isms until, until, and ists until, until the cows come home. But the bottom line is this, either God is real or he isn't. Either God tells the truth or he's a liar. Either you can trust the word of God or you can't. When it comes right down to it, there's only two worldviews. Now, there's a lot of sub-worldviews over here, but there's only one biblical worldview, and that's through the lens of the Bible. And so, we ha again, I'm, I'm wanting you to think clearly. And again, I'm not trying to be over your head, but I think this is important. You know, too long is like, oh, it's on Instagram today, and, you know, well, guess what Kardashians did. You know, we're thinking at this level, and we need to be thinking at a deeper level. And I just happen to be stupid enough to think that you all are smart enough to do it. <laughs> That's why I spend time with college kids. That's why I spend time because I believe we can change the future, if not for everybody, for those who are called by God, and we can change the world. That's why God said, be salt, be light. He didn't say blend in. In fact, he specifically said, don't cover up. You may not be that clarion light post out on the edge of the outer banks that you can see for 50 miles, but you can be that candle that lights the room you're in. You can be the individual that says, I won't bend, I won't bow, and if God wills it, I won't burn at Bank of America. You can be that person who, while everybody else says, give me more wine and meat, and I understand you had to do the surgery because you want what in my best interest. So I'm just going to blend in. I'm going to take the path of least resistance. But there has to be some in a generation that is, are remembered not by their names, but by their character, by their worldview, by their calling, by their identity in Christ. And the message of Daniel is be a Daniel. Stand up at the university. And don't give in. That's why Nebuchadnezzar wanted the young men to learn the language and literature of the Chaldeans. He wanted them to blend in. He wanted their myths, their legends, their laws to replace the truth of Scripture as their highest source of wisdom and foundation of the worldview. And today it's different. you got to conform to science. And by the way, I'm not denigrating science, but I view science through this lens. And by the way, they don't contradict, they complement you say, well, I don't agree. Well, then you haven't studied enough. Get back in the book. You'll find, I'm serious. I'm not trying to be obnoxious and I'm not trying to be like a fundamentalist. I'm just saying you haven't studied enough. And it might begin with opening your mind. You know, I'm getting sick and tired of being called closed-minded. I'm not closed-minded. 
But you can be so open-minded that you can be empty-headed. And that's because you don't have rules for engaging truth. And you wouldn't know truth if it hit you in the forehead. And if you don't know truth, then you won't know a lie. It's how we discern. And you have to decide what is going to be truth in your life. Can you tell I kind of like this stuff? Can, can you tell the Bible's important? This isn't a boring book. Anybody says the Bible's boring doesn't read the Bible. You just might as well say, I don't read the Bible. There's so much stuff here. Secondly, remember that there's special value on the children of God. There's special value on the children of God. I want you to hear me. If you're a believer following Christ, your kids are under attack. Your children, they don't care about the kid who spends 20 hours a day on Insta. They don't care about the kid who's living their own life and mom and dad are living their own life and they can make their own choices and we're just trying to survive this experience. You know who they care about? They care about the kid whose mom and dad is talking to them in their car on the way to school about how to make good decisions. They care about the kid who's earning points over here in kid life this morning by memorizing scripture and learning verses who will stand up to their teacher at some point and say, you know what? The biblical definition of marriage is one man, one woman in a, in a committed relationship for a lifetime. And yeah, I've seen eight-year-olds say that to their school teachers. And that's not hateful, folks. That's truth. And I don't want to live in a world where we accept lies as the truth. And that doesn't make me hateful. I have neighbors. I have friends. I love them. I care about them. But it doesn't mean i got to conform to it. And nor does it mean that I have some kind of sick responsibility to shut up and get in line and be quiet in the face of lies that will literally damn people to an eternity without Christ. They say, Dan, you sound so radical. You know what? Truth is radical. And we will never make a difference in our culture as long as we voluntarily self-censor in the face of lies. We have to grow some backbones. And please don't give me this, or our country is lost. I'm not concerned about our country. I'm concerned about my neighbor, my sons, my daughters, my grandkids. I'm concerned about you. I'm concerned about the guy in Africa and the one in India and the one in Thailand and the one in China because they matter to God ever bit as much as Dan Burrell and any other American you want to label. This isn't about Christian nationalism. This isn't about American culture. This isn't about anything. It's about the truth. And, you know, they can throw those accusations all they want to all day long and they're going to bounce off me like rubber on a wall, a rubber ball on a wall because you and I know what's at stake. And it's the souls of men and women, boys and girls. And it has to be our mission to make sure that they hear the truth at least once in their lifetime. And then they can respond with what they're going to do to the truth. And it ought to be our passion that every neighbor, every community member, every family member, every colleague, every coworker gets a chance to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and decide what they're going to do with truth. I can't force you. I'm not interested in forcing you because it wouldn't be real. But I am interested in that you would know the truth and let the Holy Spirit take it from there. Number three, don't be seduced by the best of what the world has to offer. Don't be seduced by what the best of what the world has to offer. And the fact is this, the world will always offer you something better. Here's a steak. Here's some fine wine. Here's a comfortable bed. Here's a fancy degree. Here's a corner office. Here's a house on the lake. Here's a comfortable vacation. Here is peace and tranquility and a lack of conflict and opposition. Remember this, the best that the world has to offer is first of all, temporary, and secondly, it's illusionary. You leave it behind, and in a hundred years, in a hundred years, every person in this room is gonna either be in heaven or in hell, but none of our bodies are gonna be on this side of the sod. Our soul is gonna be somewhere else. Don't be seduced by this moment in time. Eternity is too long and the stakes are too high. 
And I say that to all of these 14, 15, and 16-year-olds. And you know, the suicide rate among your age bracket is off the hook right now. You know why? It's because they say this is all there is. And I tell you, that's a lie. When you have a biblical review, this is not all there is. The best is yet to come. And by the way, even in this, you can live your life with purpose and intention and meaning and fulfillment so that on your last day and on your worst day, you can say, like Paul said, well, to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. You can say, if I had to do it all over again, I'd do it like this. Because this world was always temporary. Heaven is real. Hell is real. What are you going to do with that truth? Number four, elite is in the eye of the beholder. Elite is in the eye of the beholder. I'm going to guess that at some level, it was special to be chosen to be sent to Babylon. I mean, they weren't going to have to get conscripted into, into the Babylonian army, at least. At least they were going to live, right? I mean, there's worse things that happened. Sometimes they went into a village and killed all the men. They wanted to get rid of the opposition. Sometimes they took all the boys that were 13 years of younger and, and, and put them in, in basically military school so they'd grow up and go fight the other wars because they didn't want Babylonians dying. They'd rather your sons die than their sons. There was a lot, I mean, in some level, I mean, if you didn't have the right name, if you didn't have the right pedigree, you weren't going to Babylon. Now, I just want you to understand, elite is in the eye of the beholder. Don't fall into the world's definition of what elite is. Elite is not necessarily getting accepted at Harvard. It is not necessarily being named to the board of directors. It is not necessarily being able to retire at 40. Elite is well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's elite. That's elite. Just being faithful. So remember, don't fall into the world's definitions because they want to redefine what is important to you instead of what is important to God. And I would rather, and I'm going to say this, and this sounds really radical, I would rather my kids grow up ignorant and poor unpopular and unnoticed and love God and his word and spend eternity with him than I would for them to be the richest, most powerful, best educated, most elite kids on the planet. From the bottom of my heart. Because this is not all there is. I'm going to leave half my, pul- my sermon on the pulpit. I'm just telling you that right now. So this is my last point. Consider the choice of your identity. Every person in this room, but every child, and by child, I, I don't like that word, every young person, if you're 25 and younger, if you're still in school, if you're still living with parents, however you want to define that, we all need to understand that Satan and his, po- and his powers have a clear agenda to identify, to change your identity away from Christ and to anything but Christ. And I got to tell you, he's doing an awful good job right now. As soon as I get done preaching the second service, I head to the airport. I'm going to get on a plane and fly to Nashville. I'm going to meet in a home with 15 other leaders who have an interest in this topic. I was invited accidentally, I think, but because... I teach family discipleship at Liberty University. They, they found that out and they invited me. These, maybe these guys are like authors and heads of huge organizations. I don't know how I got in there, but I'm excited because I think this is a battle worth fighting. But the idea that we are having is how can we keep this generation of young people from buying into a TikTok world where we have double digit, and it's growing by double digits every year, kids who don't even know whether they're male or female. If we don't start putting some stakes in the dirt right now, we're going to lose a generation, and they're the generation that right now is in that wing. And some of them are in this room.
And moms and dads, we cannot be at the switch at this moment. And I pray for you, young parents. It's harder for you than it was for me, and I thought it was hard for me. You got a big job, but I got to tell you, it's worth fighting. And you're not going to fight it passively, and you're not going to fight it while you're scrolling Facebook while they're on TikTok. You're going to have to get reengaged in their life. I'm trying to be mean, but I am going to be honest. And sometimes we are trolling the same end of the cesspool as they are. It's just a different channel. We have to pursue Christ. (laughs) Satan doesn't just want you to simply change your mind or your name. He wants to change the way you think, the way you act, how you identify yourself, how you process morality and ethics and the law and this life and everything else. He wants you to abandon absolutes and move to uncertains, to the relative, to the conditional. He wants to replace the certainty of God's authority and God's word and God's existence and God's plan and God's purpose and God's glory and God's characteristics and God's clarity. And he wants to replace them with doubts and haze and questions and insecurity and uncertainty and conjecture. It's what Satan did in the garden to Eve. He's still doing it today. You are enrolled in Satan's university the moment you breathe your first breath. But I happen to believe this. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And I believe that there are some fourth graders and some eighth graders and some college freshmen and some sophomores and some executives and some managers and some business owners and some HOA presidents and some coffee clatch members and some lawn mowing folks and anybody you've got anything going on in this world who can stand up and be a Daniel and be a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to stand up for what is right. I believe that because if these four boys could do it, having been castrated ostracized, removed from their world, then why can't we in this day and in this hour?